0: Now, as we, as we come to God's Word this morning, in Luke chapter 7, we've been, we've been uh, journeying through the Gospel of Luke. And as we've done that, well, we, 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 we have this idea, we have this notion about, uh, and I tease it out a little bit with the kids, and, and uh, a gift that's valued, and a gift that's very valuable, and the impact that has on us. When we have been given much, we, we, we love much. That um, and yet at times uh, something that we're given. There's a lot of talk, talk about forgiveness lately. Out in the culture, people talking about forgiveness, forgiving student debt. I mean, there are some people that are that are that are thinking that it could be that $10,000 for some of them, even $20,000 of debt that hangs over their head could be just eliminated. And wow, what would you, how would you be inclined toward? How would you feel toward somebody that suddenly relieved you of 10 or 20 thousands of dollars that you owe? You would say, wow, I love these people who did this for me. I will be devoted to them. And that's exactly what politicians are counting on. It's wonderful. You don't have to pay your debt. Your children and your grandchildren will pay it instead. It's a great system we have that we can, we, can, we can bribe people with their own money. Think about it. But when God forgives, he doesn't do it that way. When God has forgiven us in Christ, he pays the debt in full himself. And that, when we grab hold of that, we grab hold of that reality of all that God has truly done for us in Jesus As as we begin to grab hold of that, it in fact begins to grab hold of us. And thus the point out of the passages before us is the one who not merely is forgiven much, but the one who perceives how much they're forgiven is also going to be the one who loves much. So I ask the question at the top of the notes page, who needs forgiveness? Well, it might be better asked, who thinks they need forgiveness? Because not everybody does. Everybody does, in fact, need forgiveness, but not everybody realizes that. And that's what we see teased out before us in the story as well. Is Is your understanding of the Christian life, And how we live this life before the Lord, having been saved by His grace, is your understanding of the Christian life, is it a loving response to what God has done? Or is the Christian life maybe better described as obedience in faith to enjoy God's blessing? It could be either one of those might well describe what we think of as the Christian life. And yet something about our perception of how it is that we walk before the Lord and on what basis could actually be very freeing or it could actually be a new set of chains that constrict us. Now, previously in in the book of Luke, in a a previous episode, we were challenged with um, statements like, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be kind to those who mistreat you. And those, those are hard calls. That's a big ask. As we unpack those a little bit, how can we do that, really? Where does the ability, where does the strength, where does the power to do that fr- come from? I think it, actually now we, we, we see some of that in this next chapter here in Luke chapter 7. Now, I'm going to read the passage in just a moment. Before I do, I should warn you, you're going to be introduced to Simon again. You've already met Simon Peter, and it would be easy to to get confused about which Simon we're talking to. Or maybe Simon Peter, the disciple, is also in the room here. But in the New Testament, just like there are many Marys, there are also several Simons. There is Simon Peter, the disciple, and there is Simon the sorcerer. There is um, Simon the leper on one hand, and over here there is Simon the Pharisee, who, of course, sees himself very different, doesn't he? So there are several Simons, there are several Marys, we need to keep those straight in the story as we go. So this story is going to be about Simon the Pharisees, and, and Pharisees are interesting, especially in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees are, are seen as, as antagonists. They are, they are against Jesus, but they're actually the Jewish leadership or the Jewish party that is the most interested in Jesus. They are the guardians of Scripture, and they're evaluating Jesus. What do we do with this teacher, Jesus? They, they at least care. The, the, the priesthood, the Sadducees at this point, they're not interested. They're not concerned about Jesus until the reality of Jesus and this movement of followers of him uh, begins to disrupt the status quo that the Romans might step in. And they're afraid that the Romans are going to step in and take away, not um, attack the crowds, but also upset the high priest positions as well. So, so the Sadducees, for instance, don't care much about Jesus until he, his, the reality of his movement would threaten their position. But the Pharisees want to know what is he teaching? How does it line up against their background out of the law and the traditions they've built on that? Uh, they are a biblical, but a, a pious, a God-fearing minority in the culture. Think of um, the ultra-orthodox Jewish person today. That's kind of the role the Pharisees played in the the first century. So now we're going to get introduced to a Pharisee here. So let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 36, or rather Luke chapter 7. Let's do that. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, and we'll read the story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, the Pharisee wants to know, well, what's, what's, what's going on with this Jesus? So he invites him in, and he's going to hear from him and, and see what it is that this rabbi has to say. And when, when you have a banquet like this, well, the, um, you, you would have the honored guests, the invited guests, who are going to be reclining at a banqueting table together. So that's often a U-shaped sort of thing, and, and people recline at the table because there are cushions set up, and they lean in on those cushions, maybe on one elbow, and they snack from the table, and their feet are laid out that way. So it's quite a low table, closer to the floor. Maybe go eat at the Petra house, and you'd get an idea of something like that, eating much closer to the floor, but you're reclining in order to do it. And so, so each person's feet are stretched out behind them. But also in this banquet room, there's the banqueting table, but there also would be others would be allowed to come in and observe the banquet. Watch these fine people and all of the uh, wonderful things they eat. The other people that might come in aren't given any food themselves, but they're able to listen in, especially if there's a a well-known rabbi who's going to be teaching, maybe explaining some things. So that is not kept from the people at large. They can come in, they can kind of stand around the outside of the room, stand along the wall, that kind of thing. But they're not at the table. That explains how there are other people present, um, like the woman whom we're about to meet. Okay, so the Pharisee asks him to dinner. He comes to the Pharisee's home, reclines at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster blast, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. In fact, it it describes literally that she's standing there weeping, apparently for joy, and her tears are raining down upon his feet. And so, his feet being wet, she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "'If this man were a prophet,' He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And, the, and Jesus answered, answering said to him, he says this internally to himself apparently, or very much under his breath, and yet Jesus answers his thoughts. Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Think of it, one owed $5,000, the other $50,000, just to give you a difference in scale. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? And Simon answered somewhat cautiously because he's not sure where Jesus is going. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you nailed it. Aren't you the bright one today? Well done, gold star. You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, now the other shoe drops. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss Of greeting, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You could have used olive oil, something very common, ordinary, inexpensive. She has instead, on his feet, used a very costly ointment instead. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. But he said to her, and he said, Jesus then says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, to make it clear that we don't misunderstand, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now the context that this is happening, is in the midst of questions. Who is this Jesus? Just prior to this, Jesus has visited the small town of Nain, and that's where he, he raises, as Luke describes it, he, he raises the widow's son from the dead and gives him back to her so that this young man will be able to continue to care for, provide for his mother who would have been left destitute without him. And the people seeing this wondrous miracle, they say, Surely a prophet of God is among us. God has visited his people. A great prophet is among us, they say. Who is this Jesus? And John, John the Baptist has sent representatives to inquire of Jesus. Are you the one, or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah that John was sent to be the forerunner of? Are you God's Savior, or should we be looking for another one still to point to? And Jesus answers them, well, look around, see what you're seeing. The, the blind see, the, the um, dumb speak, the deaf, are, uh, or, or the deaf hear, the dead are raised. These are these are the indicators that the kingdom of God is present because God's king is in their midst. And they go back and report to John, who is this Jesus? Simon has the same question, who is this Jesus? And notice, even, well, one of the things we see from him off the bat is, is he is not expecting Jesus' forgiveness he probably doesn't even perceive a need of forgiveness. He's the guardian of righteousness as a Pharisee, and he's going to protect the, the people from any false teachers. And that's why he doesn't come. He hasn't invited Jesus for Jesus to tell him something he needs to hear. He's come to evaluate and to critique the things that Jesus might have to say. Jesus is going to expose his self-righteousness But how he responds in the story, do you notice we we lose the Pharisee toward the end of the story? It's open-ended how he responds. You see, some Pharisees actually do believe the gospel and become part of the early church. Some of those guardians of the synagogue in all the places, in fact, some of those who early resisted Paul, the heads of the synagogue, become become believers in Jesus and faithful partners with Paul. There are some Pharisees in the early church as Luke describes them in Acts chapter 15. They're the ones that are still stumbling over with these Gentiles, these non-Jews who are coming into the church and they're not circumcised. but, But circumcision was with Abraham way back before the law, so shouldn't these non-Jews be circumcised if they're going to be followers of the one true God? They still have the traditions and the law requirements in their background. And that raises a question for a of the church to have, have to resolve, and I don't intend to talk much about that, except there are Pharisees in the first century church. Well, that's not surprising. There are Pharisees in the church today. There are those among us, maybe we all fit some of this somewhere, but we have come to faith in Jesus. We are grateful for his forgiveness, and yet we are also impacted by some of the traditions and expectations out of our background that color how it is that God is really pleased with us. That God is really pleased with us if we live in certain ways and we do particular things. You know, a test for this might be what in the life of another really causes you to rejoice? Do you really rejoice when you see somebody has grabbed hold of God's forgiveness and when you see that they, they, they come in confession because of particular sin in their life and they haven't mastered it yet, but they're serious about it and they, they are so grateful for God's forgiveness and the standing that they have in Jesus instead of their own self? Or do you more rejoice... When a Christian really seems to have their life together and they're doing the right things and they're walking the right ways and they're living how God would like for them to live? Which one of those examples really kind of kind of touches your heart more? That might point in some way where is my own confidence? Is my confidence day to day really in God's mercy, or is it in my behavior. That's something that's teased out for us in the story. But if we want to understand a little bit about uh, this, the perspective of Simon the Pharisee at this dinner, it might be helpful if we actually hear that from Simon's perspective. So I'm to step out of Pastor Bob just for a moment, and I want to I step into Simon. So I've got, my, I've got my prayer shawl here, because being a good Pharisee, you need to have your prayer shawl if you're going to pray, because it's no good praying if people don't know you're praying, right? I've got my I've got my scriptures right here on the corner. I don't need them hidden in my heart because I've got them right here on the corners of my my, my prayer shawl. You see, I can lift that up to the Lord when I pray. I've got tassels on because everybody knows then that, well, gee, I'm somebody important who's praying. So I've got my I've got my prayer shawl on. I'm I'm ready to pray. And yet My day-to-day has been a little disrupted lately by this teacher, Jesus. And so let's hear it from Simon's perspective. The, The crowds were in the streets that day when Jesus came to town. All the synagogue was there and more for miles around. So I asked him home to dinner to see what I could see of this famous local prophet from right here. In Galilee. But I don't know just how that woman got into the room. But you couldn't miss her gaudy clothes. Her strong and sweet perfume. She went straight to Jesus' feet. She stopped and she stood there. And as her tears began to rain down on his feet, she dried them with her hair. Now of all the women in my town, none was more well known for the flagrant sin she'd lived in, the wickedness that she had sown. And he didn't move to stop her. It seemed this prophet couldn't tell that the woman who was touching him was the kind they buy and sell. And I had no idea just what this Jesus planned to do when he said, Simon, there's something I need to say to you. So I said, teacher, if it's on your mind, then tell me what you will. And as he began to speak to me, the room grew quickly still. He said, take a good look at this woman now. In spite of all her fears, she's kissed me and anointed me, washed my feet with tears. She's honored, honored me, and you've been only rude to me instead. You, you gave no kiss of greeting. No anointing for my head. Her sins were red as scarlet, but now they're washed away. The love and faith she's shown is all the price she has to pay. For the depth of God's forgiveness is more than you can see, Simon. And in spite of what you think of her, she's beautiful to me. Well, my anger flamed to hatred. I wanted nothing more than to take this prophet by the throat, throw him out the door, to act like God, forgiving sin, to talk like that to me, this itinerant from Nazareth, backwoods Galilee. But instead, I sat and trembled, shaken to the core, And the woman still was weeping as she knelt there on the floor. Jesus turned to her, and he said, Your chains have been released. Your faith has saved you from your sin. Rise. Go in peace. Your sins were red as scarlet. Now they're washed away. The grateful faith that you've shown is all the price you have to pay for the depth of God's forgiveness it's deeper than the sea. And in spite of what the world may say, you're beautiful to me. Yeah, her sins were red as scarlet, but now they're been washed away. Her grateful faith in Jesus, all the price she had to pay. For the depth of God's forgiveness was more than I could see. And in spite of what other Pharisees may think, this mercy is what I need. It's what I need. It's what we need, isn't it? We're reminded that our our approval with God, His delight in us, is not because of what we do, but it's because He loves us and so He has restored us in His abundant mercy another story as we were talking about this in our in our um our monday morning workshop when some of the men gathered together and we began to poke into the passage together uh, um, one of them as we were talking about it shared a story and it's a story that circulated for some time and it, it it brings us a little bit closer into american church life because well, Pharisees and all of that, that's a long time ago in a land far away. And so this story brings it a little closer, but maybe only to the 80s. In fact, but maybe that's, that's safe enough because this doesn't quite describe maybe the someone that you might think of today that would be this kind of distraction to you. But you'll recognize in the midst of the story what that might be. His name is Scott. He has wild hair, wears a t-shirt with holes in it, jeans, and no shoes. This literally was his wardrobe for his entire four years of college. He's kind of odd, but he's very, very bright. He became a Christian while attending college. Across the street from the college campus, there is this well-dressed, very conservative church. They've they've talked about having a ministry to college students but they don't have any idea how they would do that. One day, we don't know why, Scott decides to go to church there. He walks in with no shoes, jeans, his t-shirt, his wild hair. He's a little late, college student. The service has already started. And so Scott starts down the aisle. The church is completely packed. He cannot find a seat. By now, people have seen him. They're looking a little uncomfortable. He doesn't look like he fits in here, but no one says anything to him. Scott gets closer and closer and closer to the front, and even the front, he realizes there's no seats left. Apparently, it's not a Baptist church. So, with no seats left, he just sits down right there on the carpet, begins to worship. Now, people are a bit uptight. The tension in the air is thickened. You know, this is, this is a distraction to in the midst of our worship, him, him just sitting there like that. About this time, the minister realizes that from way in the back of the church, one of the deacons is slowly making his way up the aisle towards Scott. He's a, he's a godly man, an elderly man, very dignified and courtly. He walks with a cane, and as he starts walking slowly toward the boy, everybody is thinking to themselves that, well, you can't really blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of of his age and his background and his traditions to allow this kind of distraction from some college kid in the middle of our worship service? Well, it takes a long time for the man to reach the boy. The church is almost silent, They're supposed to be singing still. So in that quiet, you can hear the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused on him. They'll try to sing the last verse of the song one more time because the minister also realizes that he can't start the sermon until the deacon does what he must do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor. And with great difficulty, he lowers himself down and sits down right there next to Scott, and worships with him so he won't be alone. And it was as quiet there as it is here. And finally, the minister regains his composure and he he says, attempting to start his sermon, "What what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. But what you have just seen You will never forget. Now again, that's a little culturally different from us today. I mean, this is the Northwest. People come to church in all kinds of looks and ways. And that's wonderful. We come to the Lord without a put-on, is kind of the way I think about that. And yet, there's something that that reminds us of. Somebody else that doesn't quite fit our description that maybe to us would be a distraction. And that's what this woman was in the middle of, the, of, of Simon's carefully cultivated dinner guest list. But this woman understood her need for forgiveness and so she responds in grateful love. A grateful love that doesn't always think about propriety and the the expectations of others. She yields herself in adoration to her God. Her forgiveness that she has received leads into love. Now as we read the story we might get confused on that point. Her forgiveness leads her into this expression of love. We might think from the story that because of the love that she has shown that's why Jesus then forgives her but that's not what the passage actually says she loved much because she had been forgiven the tense of the of the word forgiven each time it's repeated they're in what we would think of as a past perfect tense that she has been forgiven much at some point in the past, and that perfect implies a forgiveness that happened in the past and continues into the present. And so, because she has been previously forgiven much, so she now, the verb changes to present tense, loves much. That's how we've got to understand the story. She has been forgiven, and therefore she loves and just to be clear, that it's not loving deeds that earn her forgiveness. Jesus ends the story on those very important words, your faith has saved you. It's on the basis that by faith she receives God's forgiveness. She believes God concerning his forgiveness and restoration of her. And that's why she loves so much. That's why she is, is, um, expresses this in grateful adoration. Now, who might you think is beyond God's love or God's forgiveness? There's no way they're going to receive it. Um, theologically, you would not say that God wouldn't forgive them, but you don't expect them to be forgiven. You don't expect them to believe. That was this woman. Maybe you're idea of who that would be who is not going to be forgiven it's not likely it isn't going to happen maybe it's a particular kind of sin we all have even when we know our own guilt we all have some kind of sin that we couldn't describe if we were honest we could list maybe it's a longer list maybe it's a shorter list but there are certain sins that seem so 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 terrible that they're 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 unforgivable and I'm not arguing for the difference between forgiveness and consequences. But it's amazing. One of the guys shared a story about how the... Um, the um tired police officer in Texas who's coming off of her shift and comes home and, and gets off the elevator onto what she un- thought was her floor and comes to her apartment that she thought was her apartment and the door is ajar and so she pulls out her weapon and she enters what she thinks is her own apartment in the dark and she sees this large man coming toward her out of the shadows and she shoots him and she kills him and yet it's actually his apartment she's one floor off And she's done a terrible thing. That was an honest mistake, but she took his life for absolutely no reason except her own error and her assumptions. And yet being somewhat aggressive in how she then continued on the basis of those assumptions. His life didn't matter nearly as much as the sanctity of her apartment. And yet the family. Now there's, there's consequences to pay. That's what the court is for. And yet The man's family forgave her and made a a, 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 a public statement of their forgiveness of her on the basis of their own forgiveness in Jesus. And they hoped that she too would call on the Lord for his forgiveness. It's, It's hard for us to imagine that. It's wonderful when we see those things leak out in life around about us. It's interesting, this woman, in terms of our categories of of least likely, many of the church fathers in the 2nd century, very close to the story, much closer than we, they understood this woman to be Mary Magdalene. Not yet named, but she will be introduced to us now in the immediately following verses that begin chapter 8. Mary and these other women that followed Jesus, and Mary was the one who had the seven demons, and yet Mary, forgiven by the Lord, Mary is the one who is there at his tomb, early on the day of his resurrection, and Mary's the one who sees him and whom he sends to go tell his disciples even though they don't believe it. Mary, whom we wouldn't expect to, to, to really be part of the, the, the disciples' band at all, she's the one that Jesus gives that privilege to. Who do we think is really beyond forgiveness? Maybe you came this morning and it's, maybe it's you. Maybe you wonder, well, this is all well and good, but you don't know me. You come and you gather and you hear, but you wonder, does God really forgive me for what I continue to do? Maybe you came to church again this week after a week of stumbling, and you wonder, can it be that God really will forgive me yet again? You're not the first person to wonder that. That was a problem in the first century, too. One of the last letters that God gave his church through the Apostle John, the letter of 1 John, toward the end of the first century, second or third generations into the church, and he, they need to hear this, and they need to know that. And he, he writes in that opening chapter, eight verses in, if we say we have no sin, that's where we deceive ourselves. Yes, we will sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to be forgiving us and to be cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That's what he does again and again and again. Peter asked, Lord, how many times must we forgive? Would we even forgive seven times? And how did Jesus respond to him? We forgive 70 times seven and he's not, he didn't say that because 490 times is the magic number. Keep a list, a little book you can carry around, and when you've reached 491, you can write them off. That's not the point that he was making. He was stretching Peter's conception of what it was to truly be forgiving as God forgives. Do you think that, that Jesus would tell Peter to forgive more? in a more continuing way than God himself would forgive you? No, not at all. What we need to do is is rest in. Let the reality of His mercy and His forgiveness really grab hold of us. And like this woman, it will have its effect. His forgiveness will lead us into love. That we we are then able to to take a next step in love. And I I We don't have Jesus here to rain down our tears, to wipe his feet with our hair. So how is it that we might? What does that look like? Can I put some practical terms on that by poking around a little bit in terms of love? For example, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus says no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to... Devoted to loving the one and despising the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, can I boil that down to a ninth pithy phrase? You can love Jesus by what you do with your money. Oh, this would be a great time to say, did you know there's a church building campaign going on? (laughs) There is. But whether it's... In whatever way that is done, how we steward that which God has placed in our hand, do we do that as a loving response to what God has done? Or do we see this, look what God has given me for me? Is God trying to work a more self-centered view in us, or is God trying to work a more self-sacrifice for the sake of others' outlook in our lives? He is leading us into more of the example of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him. We'll make our home with him. There'll be fellowship together with our God, our Creator, our Redeemer. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I could boil that down to say we love Jesus By how we respond to what God's Word says to us. You spend time in God's Word and you're not just learning, taking it in, sort of like a sponge, I know more about the Bible now. I learned something of my God, of His love for me, His sacrifice for me, His wonderful mercy. And I learned something of, of how He invites me to walk with Him in His ways. And I love Him in response by doing what He says. If you love me, you keep my commandments. We love Jesus by doing what he says. John chapter 21. Simon, son of John. This is after the resurrection. This is the breakfast by the sea, right? Simon, son of John. This is the other Simon. Do you love me more than these? He said to him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he says, feed my lambs. Oops, we got a little bit of a head. I didn't finish that last one. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. It may be that Jesus is saying the same general thing three different ways for variety, but I could pull it out a little bit with the different words that are used, and I could say, "If you love Jesus by working in the nursery. Feed my lambs. You love Jesus by discipling one another. Tend and shepherd my sheep. You love, some, you love Jesus by feeding his sheep. You love Jesus by teaching what he has shown you, sharing that with somebody else. You see, in Hebrews chapter 6, he's aware of our service and love, and yet he describes it. God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. Some versions read that, uh, your work and labor of love. Your labor of love that you have shown towards his name in serving the saints as you continue to do. We love our Jesus by giving ourselves in some work or serving that benefits other believers rather than ourselves. Finally, first John 4, 19 and 21. We love because he first loved us. Anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love Jesus by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus isn't here, but those he loves are. We love him like this woman does in washing his feet by in some humble and helpful way serving others. By warmly greeting and welcoming somebody to help them know that they matter. By doing something extravagant for another, beyond what would be expected, that costs you something, but you do it out of love for the Lord. You love those whom he loves. And Jesus himself said, when you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it. You have done it. To me. Your serving Jesus in this way is beautiful. It's beautiful, like the woman. May your service in love also give Jesus a wonderful teaching moment to reach into the heart of someone, even as her love did to Simon the Pharisee. You see, she just comes. She doesn't come with an agenda. She doesn't come to make any statement to Simon. She knows that Simon despises her. But she comes into that room simply to express her love for Jesus. And yet in so doing, she also gives a wonderful moment for Jesus to teach into the heart of Simon. And we don't always know how. But if we will simply follow him in his love for others... Don't be surprised if the Lord by His Spirit uses that as a teachable moment. You don't do it because of what might result. We do not love with an agenda. We love our Lord because He first loved us. And we love Him by loving others around us. And yet, as you do, He might also use that by His Spirit as a teachable opportunity into the heart of someone who needs to know his mercy you say well that sounds wonderful but i i i'm not going to keep it up i know that i could make a list i could i could write down this is what i want to do but i'm not going to follow through how can i where does the energy where does the power to take that next step in love come from is it buckle down make a list be intentional try harder Put this like frontlets before your eyes or at least a card on your mirror in the morning that tells you again what you're supposed to do. I would give you another approach. I would say the way to find this response come overflowing more out of you is to lean further into God's forgiveness. Did this woman need to be forgiven more than the Pharisee? Not really. But this woman was much more aware of her need of forgiveness and what God had forgiven her of. The Pharisee was having trouble seeing that. He saw himself as pretty good, measuring up. The woman was more aware of her need and forgiveness, and that's our need also. Let this table We're going to come to this table in just a minute, and let this table be that. Let this table be a very tangible reminder. Something we can do this morning is lean in again to his forgiveness of us in Christ by coming to this table, partaking of those elements as we say again, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for my forgiveness, for my salvation, for my restoration into life with you. And maybe... Maybe this table might be for somebody here your first opportunity to say, yes, I believe God concerning Jesus. I believe God that he, in fact, did send Jesus to take my guilt, my sin, my shame, to die for that in my place so that by his forgiveness, if I simply believe him for it, I can be restored, and I am restored that into right relationship with God and can live in this new life that God will give me in Christ. This could be your first moment, but whichever it is, first or continuing, let's use this table not as some ritual that we do in church once a month. Let's use this table as a time to again lean into, remind ourselves of God's forgiveness of us in Jesus. Now I'm going to invite Mary, Mary Sundham is going to come back up and just play, before the worship team returns for, the, for our closing song, Mary's going to come up and just play uh, music that will remind us of a song while we come to this table together. So those who are serving, please come forward and uh, let's prepare ourselves to lean into His forgiveness. I invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness of us in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this table, these elements, that although it can be something we do as a routine, Lord, guard our our hearts from that. Instead, Lord, let us see again in a very tangible way. Let us taste something again of what it cost for our forgiveness of how deep our Father's love is for us, that Jesus took our sins, was separated from his Father in our place so that we could be forgiven and that we could come home and be received and embraced, fully forgiven and given new life because our guilt is gone. Lord, let us in coming to this table this morning remember that. And out of, Lord, uh, getting a little fuller grasp on your mercy for us, would that mercy and forgiveness get a greater grasp upon us, we pray in Jesus' name.